Genesis chapter 38, verses 12 to 26. We'll read that, and then we've got one more very short passage after that. But Genesis 38, we'll begin verse 12. Uh, it reads, In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. Uh, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give to you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back, back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again. Amen. That's the word of God. And we're going to turn to Matthew chapter one. Uh, we're going to read verses one to three. And this is, um, I guess, the basis from which uh, we're going off uh, our series, the five women that we find here. But verse uh, chapter one, Matthew chapter one, verse one to three, uh, it reads. Uh, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was a father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Pe Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Amen. This is the word of God. Good morning, everyone. Um, yeah, what a passage. Um, <laughs> uh, I think I need help, right? I, need, I think I, I, I need some um, help from God. So um, why don't you join with me in prayer? Um, and uh, let's really ask God to uh, bring to light the message that uh, he has prepared for us uh, this morning. Our Father in heaven, uh, we uh, love how you reveal yourself through your word. Uh, we love the fact that even in the hardest of texts and in the hardest of stories, uh, you uh, have prepared a lesson for us so that we might not only learn in knowledge, uh, 
but so that we might be encouraged and challenged and ultimately uh, transformed to be more uh, like your son, the Lord Jesus. Father, uh, I pray for all of us here uh, that you might give us uh, ears to hear and eyes to see. Uh, would you soften our hearts uh, so that we would not only pay attention, uh, but that we would uh, welcome the uh, message that you have prepared for us uh, this morning. Uh, Father, as always, uh, what we know not, would you teach us? Uh, what we feel not, uh, may you stir up within us. And what we are not, Lord, by the grace of your spirit, uh, would you make us? Uh, through the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, let's jump into it. Have you ever been in a situation, um, maybe when you were a little bit younger, uh, maybe if you're uh, a teenager listening to this, maybe uh, even fairly recently, you're watching a movie uh, with your family and it's rated M or MA15. So you kind of think to yourself, it should be okay. Uh, but suddenly uh, without any prior warning, uh, the scene just uh, makes you jump with shock and awkwardness. You know, those types of scenes where uh, your parents are sitting next to you and you're just making sure that you're uh, focusing so much onto the screen and you're making sure that you're not looking to side by side because you don't want to uh, lock eyes uh, in the midst of uh, such an awkward scene. And imagine it, uh, you're watching a movie uh, and, and then suddenly the, the movie sort of cuts to a uh, a sex scene or, or, or something like that. That's way too graphic. Um, well, Genesis 38 is uh, in, in, in a way, a, a bib the biblical version of those uh, awkwardness inducing scenes in movies. Um, Genesis 38 is actually found smack bang in between the story of Joseph, a, a story I'm sure everyone knows um, uh, right down to, uh, I guess, our, even our King's kids, right? Um, if you don't already know, let me just briefly explain the story of Joseph. Uh, Joseph, uh, Joseph is sold into slavery by his 11 brothers. So great brothers they are. Um, but later on, uh, he finds himself uh, being promoted in uh, Egyptian uh, royal's household, uh, a, a fellow named Potiphar. Um, and Joseph fam uh, famously resists sexual temptation uh, from Potiphar's wife by essentially just legging it out of there, right? We, we all know the story. Um, that's actually chapters 37 and 39, respectively. And, and you see, our passage is wedged in between this uh, story. It's a story of Joseph's older brother, uh, a guy named Judah, and his daughter-in-law, Tamar. It's a messy, grim, devastating story of betrayal, lies, deception, death, victimhood, power imbalances, sexual immorality, abuse, I mean, it is such an awkward and disturbing story. Um, if you thought that the verses we read out loud is awkward, um, look at the uh, first couple of verses in that chapter, which we will actually go through. Um, it's so disturbing uh, that preachers often skip it when preaching through Genesis. Um, it is, in fact, one of the least preached passages of Scripture. Um, so, uh, thanks, Paul, for uh, giving this passage to me. Uh, exciting stuff. Um, look, if, if I was to give this passage a content rating, I'd give it an R18+. plus. Honestly, uh, one commentator even notes that uh, this chapter is so shocking and so out of the blue that it has, quote, little to no benefit to the reader. It's one of those stories that you would be embarrassed to read out loud let alone tell your children, and for good reason. It's a story that you'd kind of ignore that it even exists in the Bible. But at the same time, God's word does not ignore it. It actually brings the story 
to mind. In Matthew uh, chapter 1, Paul just read it out. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered uh, Judah and his brothers. And Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Not to mention that as Christians, we believe, right, that all of Scripture is profitable. So what can we profit from uh, this story? What can we as le- uh, Christians learn about this story, uh, from this story? Uh, let me talk us through two lessons. The first being one that we can draw from the story uh, itself. Uh, that would be our first point today. Uh, and the second will be how, uh, how this story of Tamar fits into uh, the story of Jesus. Uh, why does Matthew include Tamar in the family tree of Jesus? He didn't have to. So many other names are missing here that we could, that he could have listed. So why? So those are the two uh, points for today. Uh, so uh, let's, let's dive into one of, if not uh, the most R-rated stories of the Bible. Is everyone ready? All right, let's do it. First point. For most of this, I'll walk you guys through the story of the chapter itself. Um, since on the one hand, I think it's quite uh, new to most of us who are listening today. And it, it is actually going to be pretty hard to draw out the lesson from the story if we don't actually get a deeper picture and understanding of the events that are uh, happening here. So uh, let's begin. Judah, he's the older brother of Joseph, and he's just finished collaborating with his other uh, 10 brothers, selling off the youngest, Joseph, as a slave, all because they were jealous that he got more of the father's love. I mean, I know some of us have uh, maybe uh, uh, problems, uh, have had problems with our siblings. If you thought your siblings were bad, um, I believe that they've got nothing on Judah and his brothers, right? He's, he's a piece of work, uh, even in the beginning. And after this, in, in verse one, we read, uh, it, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and, sis, uh, brothers and turned aside uh, to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. So what's happening? Judah goes off, leaves his family and finds a Canaanite woman to marry. So a, a Dulamite was a Canaanite woman, um, which was actually explicitly forbidden by his grandfather, Isaac. So uh, he's not a good uh, rule follower. So he's not really a good guy, even in the first verse. Next, he then has three kids with his wife, and his firstborn gets married to another Canaanite woman, and this is Tamar. Tamar is the Canaanite woman. Um, the firstborn is called Ur. <laughs> um, that's one. Uh, that's a good name, right? Ur, uh, Tamar's first husband, uh, is called wicked in the sight of the Lord. That's verse 7. We don't actually get told what he specifically did, but we do know that he was so evil that it gave God reason to simply put him to death. So he's gone. He's out of the picture. And then Onan, the second born, is told by Judah to marry Tamar. Now, for us, this seems super weird, doesn't it? But let me unpack a little cultural context so that it can kind of help us uh, uh, get a better understanding of what's going on here. So uh, in the ancient Middle East, where this story is set, a woman who was once married but lost her husband and was childless was socially and economically powerless. You see, back in those days, universal human rights 
were not a thing. The society was, uh, for worse, in my opinion, largely male-dominated and patriarchal. If a woman had no husbands or sons, they would become broke. Women at that time were not allowed to own land or property, or in this day and age, if I could contextualize it, they were not allowed to open their own bank account even. There was no retirement fund, no paid job, no social security, no Medicare. Uh, the practice of marrying your husband's brother was an imperfect cultural safeguard so that people in that uh, situation wouldn't find themselves in a vulnerable place. So because of the cultural context and the cultural uh, expectations of the time, Tamar has no option but to marry Ur's brother, Onan. That's verse 8. Now we read about uh, Onan in verse 9 to 10. I'm not going to read about. I'm not going to read it out loud because it is quite a spicy uh, uh, verse. Um, so if, if you want to read it, you can read it by all means. Um, but this is basically what's happening here. So Onan is also killed by God because he he, he wanted all the benefits of a physically intimate uh, relationship, but he does not fulfill his cultural responsibility to Tamar by trying for a child. So God strikes him down, not because he is sleeping with Tamar and, you know, doing the thing that's listed in these two verses, but because he knows that this child would not be his. So he would lose his chance at taking over Judah's inheritance. So he doesn't want to do his cultural familial duty to his uh, older brother by giving Tamar a son. So Tamar's second husband, in my opinion, is just as bad as her first. He is portrayed as being selfish and self-serving. And ultimately, God removes him also uh, from the picture. Now, Tamar has lost two husbands so far. What do you think? Who do you, who, whose fault is it in this situation? Was it Tamar's? No, because up until now, the entire story, I think, has rightly characterized Tamar uh, as the silent victim here. I think we would all agree by reading up to this point that Tamar has done nothing wrong. But look at what Judah, her father-in-law, thinks of the situation. He feared that he, uh, his third son, Sheila, would die like his brothers. So what else do we read? Judah basically ghosts her daughter-in-law and implicitly blames her for the predicament. He, he says to Tamar, essentially, um, go home to your parents, Tamar, um, and wait on me. Don't, don't call me. I'll, I'll call you. Right? Even though it was Judah's cultural duty to marry Sheila, his third son, to Tamar, fearing that he would also die because of Tamar's bad luck or something, essentially just lies to her. I mean, you could also safely say that Judah is not, I mean, he's still keeping his track record at being a bit of a scumbag here. And we finally come to the passage that was read before uh, in verse 12. So uh, a time jump has happened. Uh, some time has passed and Judah's wife uh, has passed away. 
Um, and through that time, we don't really get told why, but it is a, a fairly long time. Um, Judah has not spoken to his daughter-in-law, Tamar. So basically he has cut her off and Judah has, uh, uh, and Tamar has been waiting uh, to hear from Judah. Now, Tamar hears that Judah is coming to her hometown, her neighborhood. So uh, hearing this, uh, she goes out to meet him on the road. And uh, because Tamar changes out of her widow's clothes and covers herself with a veil, when Judah sees her on the road, Judah actually doesn't recognize his daughter-in-law and mistakes her for a prostitute. And if that wasn't enough, he propositions her. That's verse 16. Now, it, it seems at first that Tamar uh, uh, intentionally deceived Judah by dressing up as a prostitute. Right? That, that, that could be our first reading. But, but notice that in verse 14, we are only told that she took off her widow's outfit and wore a veil. Now, there's many ways to interpret this, and many uh, commentators do, but, but I personally think that um, details are left uh, uh, out of the description for good reason. And I think this is because um, the, uh, the Tamar, sorry, uh, I think because Tamar wants to uh, confront Judah uh, without him first sort of turning tail and running when he recognizes Tamar in her widow's clothes, because if Judah saw Tamar in her widow's clothes, th then he could definitely go, oh, that's Tamar. And then he would sort of leg it out there. Uh, and also uh, just to point out that Judah is the one that thought she was a prostitute, right? Judah is the one that asks for her services and offers a goat as payment. Now that's verses uh, 16 to 17. Uh, if there was one thing that Tamar did wrong, uh, it was perhaps agreeing uh, to it. But I do have to point out that I really don't think the story paints her as a villain. In fact, I think the story paints her as a victim. It, the story paints uh, Tamar as a, as a widowed uh, woman driven into a desperate situation and forced to a desperate thing because of the systemic injustice of the time. See, she has little choice but to agree to Judah's terms. But even so, in the midst of that, she asks Judah if he could give her some uh, collateral, if you will. She goes, uh, can you maybe let, lend me your signet, your cord, your staff? Uh, that's verse 18. Th th these items uh, that were uh, things that identified a person. So if you were to uh, think about it in our time, it's kind of like your driver's license or your credit card uh, uh, or nowadays um, your smartphone, right? Because your smartphone has all of those things these days, right? So he leaves uh, his phone uh, to the prostitute and he does this thing. The deed is done. As readers, we read. And we are, dis we, we, we are horrified, aren't we? This despicable, immoral act is committed. A father-in-law that should have protected and cared for his daughter-in-law ends up sleeping with her. When it comes time for uh, Judah to send over his payment, the so-called prostitute is nowhere to be found. And not wanting to cause controversy and feeling a little bit embarrassed for his behavior, he sort of tells his mate, ah, let's pretend it never happened. Don't worry about it. 
Now, another time jump happens three months later. Judah hears that Tamar is pregnant. And this despicable man condemns her to be burned to death. That's verse 24. But in an act of brilliance, and it really is brilliant, Tamar pulls out her trump card during her sort of trial. She basically says, well, the person who got me pregnant, the person who was complicit in my prostitutional act, he left his phone with me. He kind of gives the phone to Judah and goes, this is the phone. And Judah unlocks it with the four-digit pin, or rather it unlocks with the face ID. Verse 26, then Judah said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not know her, which means sleep with her. Um, he did not know her again. And that's the end. It's spicy story, right? It's controversy, sex, betrayal, moments when characters drop dead. It's almost like an episode of a Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad, right? But I mean, uh, spiciness aside, what is there for us to learn? I'm sure that everyone can agree that Judah is a bit of a scumbag. Not even a bit. He's, he's terrible. He's downright horrific. And I hope I've made it easier for us to understand Tamar. She wasn't simply a manipulative sort of femme fatale figure. She's, in fact, a victim of her culture. She lived in a time where uh, systemic oppression of women drove her to do whatever she had to do with the means she had left to fight for what was hers. You see, just like life, real life, this story is not a clean cut tale of black and white moral absolutes, but murky shades of gray. Judah, more hero, a more villain than hero, ultimately sees the error of his ways. Tamar, more hero than villain, though definitely not perfect, is ultimately vindicated. The, the story of Judah. So let's look at Judah. The story of Judah is an example of how the Bible story is not about good people being good, but about not so good people stumbling forward in the mess of their mistakes and finding repentance in the presence of God. We all can agree that Judah was a scumbag. He's a real piece of work at the beginning of the story. At the end of it, he is exposed. He is humbled to the ground. His hypocrisy, his sexual immorality, his cowardice are all exposed by the very person that he victimized. In verse 26, we, he does something that the reader does not expect. We did not expect this to happen. He repents. And later on, in fact, in the story of Genesis, in the story of Joseph, we actually see a glimpse of how he had changed. If you know the story of Joseph, when Joseph uh, uh, declares that Benjamin, who's the youngest at that point of the family, must be taken hostage, Judah actually steps in and gives himself instead. He, he says, take me, not Benjamin. So this is the same person. A person who thought only about himself in Genesis 38, who disregarded his family duties to the very end, 
until it was exposed, later on gives his own life to protect his family. See, this story of Judah is well, good news for people like us. Because although few, if any of us, mirror Judah's actions to the teeth, we are, we are also folks who, who stumble forward in the mess of our mistakes, aren't we? We look back and we've made mistakes in the past. It's good news for the hypocrites among us who hold double standards up against others. It's good news for the sexually immoral, those who have in the past treated sex in a transactional manner. And I tell you what, in the culture we live today, that's becoming even harder and harder to not uh, uh, embrace and, 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 and practice even. I mean, either physically or, or digitally online. And you know what I mean by that? It's good news for the, the morally cowardly who avoid responsibility at the cost of the well-being of others. Judah's story is a messy story. And I initially had no idea why the story is wedged between the story of Joseph. But after this week, I'm kind of glad that it's in the Bible. Because it demonstrates that God knows that the world we live in is gritty and messy. And the people who occupy this world, you and me, sometimes have gritty and messy lives and are faced with gritty and messy situations. See, the message of the Christian Bible is not a picture of a morally praiseworthy people being held up as examples to follow. It is often a mirror that exposes the, the deep, secret, shameful practices of ourselves and a God who invites even people like Judah to a better way. Before I finish up the first point, I want to draw up a uh, final attention to Judah. That's, that's uh, Tamar. We, we talked about Judah. Now let's look at Tamar. It's true that what she did you know, dressing up in a way that Judah mistook her as a prostitute, well, maybe it wasn't the smartest thing to do. Maybe it wasn't the most godliest thing to do. It's also true that having a child with her father-in-law, it's not the right thing to do. But the reason why Tamar's story is here is to give us, the reader, an insight into the desperation of the victimized and oppressed of the world. If anything, it should raise our collective empathy toward those who are in these sorts of situations. See, one way of seeing uh, this, this, this story is to see Tamar as bad of a person as Judah. You know, some of the things that she does seems to us as maybe, you know, taking things too far to get what she was owed. But, but I think another way of seeing it is that the way that the Bible sees it. Because Tamar is described as being more righteous than Judah in the story. This isn't necessarily a comment about the goodness of Tamar's actions, but a declaration of what Tamar is owed. You see, Judah was wrong in denying Tamar her family, security, and acceptance, whilst Tamar was in the right in all these things. Tamar was manipulated, abused, and oppressed by the very people that were meant to protect and help her. And, and at the end, even through the manipulation, the abuse, the oppression, she comes out of it vindicated. 
Tamar's story is for those of us who have been in situations where we have been made into a victim. Whether it's emotional, physical, or God forbid, sexual. Elements of all these three are present in Tamar's story. And it's entirely possible that the story of Tamar is in many ways the stories of some of us listening right now. And just like the the harrowing accounts of, of sexual assault survivors sharing their stories and being given justice in our day and age, the story of Tamar serves to encourage readers who are in similar situations that there is a way out that there is a day of justice coming for them. It gives hope to those that might have forgotten what hope looks like. I love that this story of Tamar is in the Bible. It reminds me that that even in situations of horrific abuse and mistreatment, God knows and God cares even more than anyone else about those who are in the thick of it. So that, that, that is the, the story of Tamar and Judah, a harrowing, controversial, R-rated story of betrayal, injustice, abuse, neglect, and ultimately repentance, righteousness, and vindication. Now, I'll be spending a much, much shorter time on the second and final point today, on why Tamar is listed as one of the few named ancestors of Jesus. But let me uh, start it off by talking about a movie that I watched uh, recently. Uh, There's a a scene in uh, The Kingsman, um, great movie. If you haven't already watched it, uh, watch it, please. Uh, Where the main character named Eggsy, uh, who's a working class young man uh, living in uh, the projects of London, is being recruited by Harry Hart. He's he's a rich aristocrat. Um, He's being recruited into a secret spy agency. And Harry Hart tries to sort of, I guess, tell Eggsy off for his seeming lack of drive and motivation because he reads about how when he was younger, he quit the army. And Eggsy fires back at Harry and says to him, and I quote, well, that's because my mom would have gone mental if I kept, uh, if I uh, joined the army. Banging on about losing me as well as my dad. Didn't want me being cannon fodder for snobs like you judging people like me from your ivory towers with no thought about why we do what we do. We ain't got much choice. You get me? And if we was born with the same silver spoon up ourselves, we'd do just as well as you, if not better. End quote. (laughs) So for Eggsy, uh, the judging attitude of Harry was just another example of rich, stuck-up betters who had no idea about the pressures of life for the average working class Brit. Being helped and guided by a person who knows what it's like being where we are and what we've gone through, who is from a family background like our own, makes a world of a difference than a person whose experience and upbringing is nothing like our own. Now, you would expect Knowing who Jesus is, the son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the savior of the world, the Messiah, the way, the truth, and the life, the the list can go on, that he would come from a line of ancestors that were heroic and noble and morally pure, 
a line that is full of people that lived amazing and righteous lives who did what was right in the eyes of God, we'd actually expect that Jesus's family tree would come from, let's say, Joseph, right? Joseph, the one who overcame sexual temptation, who saved his family from famine and made his people into a great nation, the one who understood, submitted, and walked in the will of God. Joseph was a pretty good fellow, right? But it is not Joseph's name we find in Matthew 1. It's Judas and Tamar's. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Why then is, Ju uh, why then is Tamar listed here? Sarah and Rebecca, both important characters in Genesis that get much more screen time in the Bible than Judah. They're not listed. Why Judah and Tamar? Because God sent his son, not only into a messy and messed up world, but into the actual history and bloodline of a family tree that is littered with messed up, complicated and checkered people with morally questionable lives. God's savior for humankind was not born from a privileged, well-off, well-reputable line of people, but from an average, typical, sin-laden family tree. All four of the women listed in the family tree in Matthew, in fact, would find, as we dive into the sermon series, have spicy and pretty grim stories themselves. And that is the point. The inclusion of Tamar and Judah in the genealogy of Jesus, in one way, could have been a shock to the original readers. The king of kings, the chosen one, the son of God, God in the flesh, comes from a line of people that had Tamar and Judah in the history. But on the other hand, it would have been a deeply comforting message, as it should be for us today. Because you know what this means? It, it means that Jesus is really one of us, not just in the metaphysical sense that he was human like you and me, but that he was one of us coming from a family of complicated origin, of controversial actions, of sons and siblings that came from questionable unions of mothers and fathers that were far from perfect. <laughs> it's interesting. If you were to ask your parents about your own family tree, See if they mention the, the checkered people, the black sheep of the line. It's funny. Um, I was hanging out with uh, a couple of my friends uh, uh, a couple of months ago, and we talked about like our family tree and stuff. And it was funny. It was six of us. And all six of us said that our parents told us that we were uh, descended from noble families. So then I was like, to my, I was questioning to myself, hang on a second. Um, then who were the peasants? 90% of people back in those days were, were, were peasants. Six of us were all from noble families. Like someone is lying here. Someone is hiding something there, right? You know, who are the peasants, the slaves, the thieves, the adulterers, the people who had controversial marriages? We don't like to talk about that part of our family tree, but God doesn't do that. He makes it clear that Jesus is from a line of people that were as controversial as a family might get. One author says it this way, and I think this is brilliant. Tamar and Judah represent the people Jesus came for, uh, represent 
the people Jesus came from, and therefore also the people Jesus came for. See, Jesus chose to enter into this particular family line, knowing full well of its history and record of sin and messiness. The fact that Tamar and Judah are listed in the line of Jesus shows us that even those who live lives like these, at the end of the line, there is redemption because at the end of this family line, Jesus is born. I think there is real beauty in our church choosing to wind up to Christmas with this sermon series because you know what it does? It it reminds us that the Savior, the Lord Jesus, really did come for sinners. Sinner is not just a name through religious admission, uh, because we're, we're good at that. We're, we're good at saying, yeah, I'm a sinner. But, but I'm talking about real sinners, people like Jesus's ancestors, the Tamars and Judas. For those who victimize and do harm to others like Judah, for, for those who have been victimized and are forced into morally questionable situations like Tamar. And in the family tree of J- uh, Tamar and Judah, in Jesus there is a chance for their mistakes to be fixed and their dignity restored. Let me explain. Where Judah failed in being a loving protector who honored his daughter-in-law, Jesus succeeds. Jesus protects us with his own life, does he not? Jesus honors us all by raising us to life by faith in him. And in Tamar's case, a story of a woman who was left to her own devices where her family and society not only neglected her, but actively worked to keep her oppressed is redeemed in Jesus. There is a reason why in time and time again, in the prophecies of the Old Testament, the widows and the orphans are mentioned as being those who will be free when the Messiah comes. In Isaiah 9, we read about this, that when the Messiah comes, he will proclaim freedom to the widows and orphans, to the captives, to free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the Lord's favor over them. At the end of Genesis 38, we're still left wondering, in a way, where God is in the mess. We read about the despicable actions of Judah, you know, and we ask ourselves, where is the God of justice in this story of deep injustice? We read about Tamar and we grieve with her with her and alongside her. Where is the God of comfort in the story that makes us deeply uncomfortable? Sprinkled throughout the rest of the Old Testament, but seen most clearly in the first verses of the New, we read that Jesus was born into this family tree, this story. And the lingering question left at the end of Genesis 38 is answered at the beginning of Matthew 1. Jesus is born. He is born into a world of messiness and injustice to make the wrong things right once and for all. In closing our time together, um, let me quickly draw our attention uh, back to the exact word of that Genesis commentator I referred to. He says, this peculiar chapter stands alone without connection to its context. It is isolated in every way and is most enigmatic. It does not seem to belong with any of the identified sources of ancestral tradition. It is not evident that it provides any significant theological lesson. After spending time in the passage today, I'm not sure if I agree with this person. I actually think it's the opposite. I think there's great lessons to be learned. 
Because I think this is a story that mirrors our messy reality. That life is not an absolute black and whites or moral absolutes, although you know moral absolutes definitely exist. But I'm just simply saying life just feels sometimes like a million shades of gray, doesn't, doesn't it? I mean, the story exists in the Bible because it demonstrates that in the midst of a gray, messy world, God understands and ultimately speaks into the exact same situation. I don't think it might surprise us for me to say that Judas and Tamar's exist today, far more than we might want to admit. And the fact that these characters are written about in our holy scriptures proves that God cares about people like these. It should give us hope in our complicated dramas in life, when things don't tend to don't don't seem to work themselves out in a clean cut way, when life you know throws lemons and abuse and betrayal and lies and scandals fire at us from all cylinders. I want us to remember this story and be remembered that God knows and he understands and he cares. You know, he confronts the abuser, the Judas of the world, and even people such as these can turn from their ways and change. He, com- he, com- he comforts uh, the, the victims, the, the Tamars of the world. And just like Tamar, God will redeem their pain and circumstance. You know, it's actually remarkable that in the new heavens and the new earth, Tamar will not be remembered for her deception, prostitution, or questionable sexual partners. She will be remembered as a forebearer of the King of Kings. She will be remembered as an ancestor to the savior of the world. It is through this savior, King Jesus, that the Judas and Tamars will be confronted and comforted. He lived the righteous righteous life that Judah could not. He suffered injustice, oppression, and betrayal like Tamar, so that at the end of it all, he would redeem the Judah and Tamars of the world.